Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, Sonos, they reported better-than-expected numbers last night after the close raised their forward guidance. The stock market likes it. It's up 17% today, S-O-N-O on your Bloomberg Terminal stocks up 17% today, 57% year-to-date, and about 167% on a trailing 12-month basis. So this story is absolutely working for shareholders to give us the latest. We welcome Sonos CEO Patrick Spence. Patrick, talk to us first about your earnings last night. Big numbers, the street likes them. What are the key takeaways? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, You know, we have really capitalized on the system that we've built over the last 19 years. And, you know, I mentioned last quarter we'd hit an inflection point. I feel like we're just, you know, continuing to go from strength to strength on the back of that. And certainly, you know, one of the big trends here is just the explosion in audio, right? So you see it with podcasts, uh, the streaming music take up, audiobooks, and now social audio. So uh, audio is booming, uh, and we are a huge beneficiary of that. Patrick, I'm going to ask the one question that's been on everyone's minds for a long time. You know what that is. Are we getting headphones? <laughs> you know, and you know we don't talk about a product roadmap. But look, but we, you, you know, said we, we, we would. We are a small player in the whole audio category today. Uh, we see a lot of opportunity in a number of categories that we're not in today. So uh, stay tuned, because I think over time, uh, you know, you could expect to see us play in every category of audio. All right, Patrick, give us a sense of how your business, let's kind of rewind back to early March of last year. Kind of just give us a sense of how your business changed in March of 2020. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a shock, obviously. Our first focus was on the uh, health and safety of our people. So March 13th, we all headed home and we've been working from home ever since. Uh, And I just have been astounded by, you know, I knew we had the best team in the world. I might be a little bit biased, but at the same time, you know, to see the way that everybody has adapted uh, and how resilient they've been in the face of all the challenges that we've had this year. And you, you guys know, I mean, supply chain has been a massive issue this year, right? With all these shortages, everything that's been happening. And our team has just done a phenomenal job, like, you know, end to end in terms of being able to manage our business, create new products, launch new products, sell our products. I mean, our DTC sales have been off the charts uh, in the midst of a pandemic and working from home. And so uh, I am just so proud of the team and grateful, but it's really been a team effort uh, and the adaptability and resilience has been incredible. Patrick, how do you sell Sonos in the sense of, you know, high-end audio is such a specialized field and it's so particular. And at the same time, if you walk into a store and you don't know an awful lot about the brand's backgrounds or what have you, what's to stop somebody buying a Bose over a Sonos? Yeah, well, I think the, you know, you can get started with Sonos for $169. So we've really democratized that um, Mm. and democratized and brought kind of high-end audio um, to the masses, if you will. And... The, the best place I would want you to experience Sonos is someone else's home. And that's where that's the number one driver of our new customers is actually hearing about Sonos from a friend or family member. And that's how they come into the Sonos ecosystem. And that is huge, right? It's a huge testament to the power of the brand, a huge testament to the customer experience that we deliver today. And the nice thing about Sonos and what's different than all the traditional audio brands 
is that you, know, you can start with one, you can start with many, and then you add more over time. So one of the greatest things that we, we talked about in this last quarter is that we had a record percentage of our existing customers coming back in the quarter and adding another product to their Sonos system. Not replacing, but rather adding another Sonos product into their home, which um, is just a testament to uh, the kind of products we build and the brand we've built. You're where again in Santa Barbara? Because me and Paul will come right over and, and test that out. <laughs> I try, you know, I grew up in Toronto, so I, I, I think I've paid my dues when it comes to snow and the cold and all of those things, but you're welcome anytime. Just for the all Sonos. Right. Yeah, so it's interesting. So, um, Patrick, I'm a former investment banker. I, when I see a stock up as much as yours is, I know you don't necessarily need the cash. Any thoughts of raising equity here and taking advantage of your strong stock price? Uh, no, we, we reported record cash levels and we paid off a little bit of debt that we had. So we're debt-free, uh, we bought 650-ish million uh, on the balance sheet, we are fully focused on how do we invest that to drive okay. more growth and build on this momentum through, you know, let it be acquisitions or organic efforts. But um, we are just, uh, we feel like we have great momentum. There's a massive opportunity in front of us. It's all about investing. Patrick, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. When should we expect maybe another product update briefly? Well, you know, we actually, I mentioned last night that we have a product, new product coming next month. So we're excited about that. And we also have our first uh, investor event on March 9th. So uh, stay tuned for that one. Well, that is exciting. Sonos, of course, US-based and uh, just a wonderful audio product maker. Charging cradles, adapters, controllers, wireless speakers, you know, loudspeakers, amps, anything that you could possibly think of. And they are based in Santa Barbara, California, with about 1,500 employees. Patrick Spence is CEO of Sonos. Well, it's our pleasure now to bring in Dr. Lucas Joppa, who's Chief Environmental Officer for Microsoft, no less. It's the first time that there has been a Chief Environmental Officer. So basically, Dr. Joppa is leading the development and execution of any sustainability strategy that Microsoft comes up with across its worldwide business. So, Dr. Joppa, thanks for joining. What have you decided Microsoft needs to do in terms of sustainability? Well, thanks for having me on the show. Really a pleasure to talk about sustainability, particularly now in, um, in today's climate and today's uh, administration here in the United States. I think a little bit ago, about a year ago, Microsoft stepped back and asked itself if we thought we were doing enough on sustainability. I think the clear answer was no. Uh, everybody needs to do more. We put in place an acceleration of our ambition really to see us set industry leading commitments across four key areas, carbon, water, waste, and, and ecosystems. And we spent the last year setting those commitments, which were designed to address what the best available science says every individual organization and ultimately our global economy needs to do. And we culminated the year with a set of commitments that see us by 2030 committing to be a carbon negative water-positive, zero-waste company that's also protecting more land than we use and building out the computational infrastructure of what we call a planetary computer to help society better manage natural resources. So I think those, that set of commitments really does concisely represent what we think needs to be done. And about two weeks ago, we issued our first annual report that was kind of a 
a progress report on how we've done in the first year of not just commitment setting, but also working towards achieving our 2030 commitments in, in 2020. Saw some great progress. We reduced our emissions by 6%, a little over 6%. We managed to complete a pretty historic removal of carbon, a purchase of carbon removal of about 1.3 million metric tons. Both of those things put us well on our way to being a carbon negative company by 2030. So, Dr. Chapa, how do we, uh, you know, ESG investing, environmental sustainability, social uh, governance, I mean, it's becoming a big, big part of the investment uh, community investment process. How do we hold senior managers, board members accountable for these goals? Tell us how Microsoft does that, because a lot of folks are just concerned that this is rhetoric from corporate America, not necessarily something that's measured uh, and maybe reflected in compensation, for, for example. Well, one of the things that we thought was important was to represent it in compensation for our senior leaders. So after a lot of thinking about this, uh, this exact question that you posed, how do you hold senior leaders accountable? We, um, we announced as, as part of our one-year anniversary announcement that we would be tying executive compensation of our CEO, our president, our CFO, and, and the senior leadership team more broadly to meeting our sustainability goals. And I think that is just absolutely critical in the corporate context to really tie it directly to the core compensation incentivization measures that any company holds. So what does it specifically mean for our products? Will we notice any difference? Uh, well, I, I hope so. Um, but in many respects, we don't really want you to notice a lot of difference. We want your products that um, that you consume from Microsoft to, you know, be as 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 um, helpful as as they possibly can be. But we want them to do that in a way that's increasingly environmentally sustainable. So, should you notice that your products are being powered by 100% renewable energy? Um, like they will be by 2025 um, for all of our cloud customers. I, I, I wouldn't expect you to notice that, but I would expect you to just by default receive those benefits by just being a customer of Microsoft. Would I expect you to notice that, you know, all of the, the hardware and componentry of our data centers, for instance, are part of a new circular cloud initiative that we're, we have behind our secure private perimeter of our data centers, increasing our reusability and recycling of all of our componentry by up to 90%. You probably won't notice that either, but all of our customers are going to receive those sustainability benefits by default. It's then up to us to be able to provide those reporting platforms so that those who care do have access to that information so that they can include it in their external third-party reporting into their stakeholders and shareholders. Dr. Joppa, just about uh, 20 seconds here. Just give us a sense of the governments that you work with around the world. How cooperative have they been? Well, you just I think everybody's seeing the, the tide shift here in governments all around the world. We have a new administration here in the United States. We saw some extremely interesting executive orders putting the full weight of government into um, clean uh, climate procurement decisions, putting science at the, at the center of decision making. Uh, in the EU, we see just, you know, rapid progress on this. I think this is the we're starting to see the dominoes fall all across the world on progressive policy, um, right. progressive climate policy. 
Very good. We will certainly uh, be paying attention going forward. Dr. Lucas Joppa, Chief Environmental Officer for Microsoft, based, of course, in Redmond, Washington, as the company accelerates its plans for uh, to go green, to become even more green. Well, New York City restaurants, they will be open their indoor dining to about 25% capacity beginning tomorrow, just in time for the Valentine's Day rush. This is good news for restaurants. The question is, how good uh, is this news? Let's check in with Kate Crater. She's a food editor for Bloomberg Pursuits, joining us on the phone uh, from New York City. So, Kate, it's good news for the restaurants, I think, but I'm just not sure how good. What do you think? That's exactly right. It's good news and the optics of it are good and it gets restaurants names out there. You get to think about it, you know, get the gears going. But in terms of a financial like windfall, it's nowhere near that. In fact, it's a loss for a lot of them to open. Will they be able to access more PPP if we get, I mean, at the moment it's $813 million in the proposal by the administration. It may not end up at $800 plus billion, but that's where it is at now. Would these restaurants that have managed to stay open or to close and reopen be able to access more of that? Yeah, they should. Um, the new loans are definitely geared more, less towards chains and more towards independent restaurants. And there's a new there's a $25 billion um, federal aid bill for restaurants that is um, getting some attention. And everyone's very hopeful about that. And that, that's the kind of thing that makes a difference, you know, not, not opening four tables on, yeah. uh, you know, right before Valentine's yeah. Day. That's not, that's not sustaining restaurants. So, Kate, I'm just you know reading uh, your uh, story on the Bloomberg Terminal with you and your team. Uh, lots of great uh, reporting in there. So, I guess one of the issues is I got a lot of these restaurants laid off staff when they were forced to close. Can they even get that staff back and, and be ready to go? It seems like kind of a, a rush here. It's a great question, and yeah, I think even gearing up towards Valentine's Day. Um, that, that in itself was a challenge, but when Cuomo made a relatively last-minute call to open on Friday the 12th instead of Sunday the 14th, it gives it gives restaurants a couple more days to celebrate Valentine's Day, but it's really short notice because a lot of restaurant workers can't afford a New York City rent and have moved away, so it's been a scramble for a lot of them to staff their dining rooms. Kate, in your story, there's this sentence, and it's just so sad. Already more than 110,000 restaurants have closed permanently or for the long term across the country, with New York City seeing more than 4,000 closures, according to the New York State Restaurant Association. These closures, any hope that these, these chefs and these managers and so on, that they'll reopen maybe once rent goes down in certain areas? Yeah, Bonnie, you know what? I really want to be hopeful about that. And, I mean, there's so much talent. And you can see from the way so many restaurants have pivoted their, you know, their models to do takeout and meal kits. I think there's a lot of opportunity for them. But there's also a fear, this is another story we're working on, that um, for all the real estate opportunities out there, it's going to be the chains that are going to sweep in and take advantage of it. Um, so to go back to what Paul was saying, hopefully when loans come through, um, some good enterprising chefs and um, restaurant people will be able to take advantage of that. Kate, my understanding of the economics of the restaurant business is it's very, very thin margins, <laughs> and you have yeah. to be at or near you know, full capacity and turn over the tables and all that kind of stuff. And 25%, it just seems like an unsustainable level. What are some of these restaurant owners 
hoping for? They're hoping to get back to full capacity by the spring, by the summer. What are they saying? Yeah, no, there's a big, um, there's a big push. Some New York City um, restaurateurs are lobbying hard, um, de Blasio and Cuomo, to quickly open at 50%. I'm not sure 100% is, I wouldn't even guess when that's going to happen. But when outdoor dining can come back strong, there have been fantastic innovations on that front. I think with 50% indoor dining and outdoor dining, like nice weather and all those accommodations that have been made, that's starting to be a much more sustainable model for restaurants. But like Daniel Balud, the great chef Daniel Balud said, Another another um, hard factor for them is that there's a, a mandated closure at 10 p.m., and that means a lot of these restaurants at only 25% can only do one service a night. If it was extended to 11, they might be able to do two services, and that, as you can imagine, doubles the amount of people you can bring in. And it's funny, places where there are more people, like New Jersey, have a higher capacity. <laughs> so right now, it's, it's a 35% capacity, yep. and Westchester is operating at half capacity, and apparently that's where everybody went. You would have thought that New York <laughs> City, which is emptier, would be able for yeah, that. Yeah, I can tell you, you know, here in, in New Jersey, the restaurants, they are at 35% capacity. I mean, of people, course. the demand is there. Yeah, absolutely. Kate, uh, finally... Are landlords giving any concessions? Anecdotally, I have heard that they are absolutely not giving any concessions, which really surprises me. Yeah, anecdotally, I've heard the same thing. Although, actually, I've heard that they're starting to, there's, you know, it's there's so much empty storefronts now, so many of them. Um, I think they are starting to realize or make, or instead of doing like long-term leases, doing short leases, which um, I think can benefit can benefit restaurateurs who might want to try and experiment and do something. But not it's not happening as fast. Yeah, I mean, as you want. literally Midtown Manhattan, you're talking about, you know, $90 per square foot. You know, it's it's an insane amount of rent. But that's because there are normally tourists all over the place and every place is always full. And, you know, it can withstand that. But I can tell you Midtown Manhattan is absolutely empty. Kate Crater, thank you. It's a great story on the Bloomberg. It is 10.48 on Wall Street time for Bloomberg Opinion. Today we are joined by Ferdinando Giuliano, Bloomberg Opinion Editor. His column is entitled, Who's Booking Their Beach Holiday Already? And it really goes to the issue of as more and more people get shots, how much freedom should they have? Ferdinando, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a key takeaways here. How do you think this is going to play out as more and more people begin to get jabs? Well, I think it's going to become a very important issue. At the moment, um, you know, the data I've collected shows that we've got around nine, at least 19 million people in the world who've been fully uh, vaccinated. That means two jobs in, uh, because the existing vaccines require two doses, as we know. Uh, and half of them are in the United States. But as the rollout continues, this number is going to grow. So governments will face uh, demand to give more freedom to people who have um, been fully, fully immunized. Um, but I think there are both medical and uh, uh, ethical issues with uh, giving uh, these people uh, these passports back. You know, we can call them uh, passports if you want. So detail some of those medical issues, if you will. I think the ethical issues we can probably imagine a little easier. Well, the, medical, the main medical issue is that we are still not quite sure whether people who've been immunized are infectious or not. In other words, uh, we know that vaccines are very effective in uh, 
preventing especially the worst forms of uh, COVID-19. But we don't know yet with certainty whether you can still spread the virus to other uh, individuals. And this issue is key if you think, for example, about doctors. I mean, uh, doctors have been um, vaccinated first, uh, partly to protect them, but mainly to, um, you know, make sure that they don't spread uh, the virus to um, the people who are in hospital or very fragile. Now, imagine we give, we tell doctors that uh, we can, they can just roam around freely uh, because, uh, you know, we want to give them this passport. But they could become dangerous. Now, there is mounting evidence that perhaps um, these vaccines do protect from infections. Uh, once uh, we have certainty that, you know, their protection from infection is very high, then we can set these medical issues aside. But for now, uh, we just can't. Well, it seems like there's also an economic argument here that we all know on a global scale um, that, you know, the economic disruption and impact from closing down is just too great. And it seems to me that, you know, I guess the argument can be made that, hey, if you're fully inoculated, go out and start living your life, go to restaurants, go to Disney World. What are the ethical issues associated with that? That seems kind of straightforward to a lot of people. Well, the issue is that at the moment, the distribution of the, the supply of vaccine is constrained. And the distribution of vaccine is uh, tightly enforced by politicians and the public health authorities. In other words, if you're not vaccinated, it's not your choice. It's because the state has decided that you're not a priority group. And for good reasons. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not debating that. I think it's absolutely right that we uh, take care, uh, first of all, uh, of the people who are most at risk. But should then, the, you know, the fact that the government is taking care of you by giving you, uh, you know, this um, uh, priority treatment, allow you to go and live your lives, uh, you know, better than those who are further down the queue, just because they're younger, or, um, you know, they, they don't have an underlying condition. I think this is a, a real question. And it could put a lot more pressure on government to make different forms of choices from the ones they are making, again, for very good reasons. And one final point, I think, is a generational issue. Let's remember, a lot of young people have been forced uh, to stay at home, maybe have lost their jobs, maybe um, couldn't attend schools because we were here, you know, they were really trying to protect the elderly. Now, imagine a society where uh, youngsters have been, you know, really uh, been at home to protect the elderly and are now forced at home again while the elderly can roam around uh, freely. I think they would feel very aggrieved. Do we need all or most countries to get on the same board? Or is it possible for each country to sort of treat their citizens a different way and for the world to go back to normal somehow? Well, I think, you know, on many issues uh, like, you know, what happens to your social life, your uh, habits, whether you can go to a restaurant, a stadium or a concert, each country can go uh, alone. Obviously, on traveling, it's going to be very different. and There needs to be some coordination, which is why uh, the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis was very worried about uh, the risk of another wasted summer for a tourist-dependent Greece. He's, he's asking uh, the EU to adopt a joint position on, on this very issue. I think when it comes to traveling, there will need to be coordination. But I think at the moment, 
um, governments are still grappling, even just domestically, with what uh, answer they should give to this uh, question. So, Fernando, what do you think we should be focusing on to get a sense of how this might play out? Is it the, you know, some of the policies from the travel companies um, or from governments per se? I'm just not sure what's going to be the driving force here about how we reopen. Is it going to be driven by the governments or is it going to be driven by the market? Well, I mean, I think on uh, uh, the governments are, governments are going to be key because as we, as we know, uh, you know, they've been able to enforce very draconian uh, rules over time. So if they just bar, um, you know, companies from doing something, companies will simply have to obey. Uh, but we also know that, you know, there's going to be uh, once, you know, uh, I think the vaccine becomes more widely widespread. I think companies will face some uh, very important question and governments will need to provide answer. I think an obvious question uh, issue is uh, uh, whether, whether companies will be able to uh, dismiss workers who do not want to uh, get vaccinated. And I think this is something uh, which uh, is going to be a very big question, which I think legal scholars should already start uh, thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I presume there will be court cases to that effect, right? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I'm all in favor of personal freedom, but when you start thinking about some uh, jobs like uh, people who work in care homes, uh, you realize that having someone who doesn't want to get vaccinated uh, is going to be a major, major issue and not just getting your personal, it's not just an issue of your own personal freedom, but it's an issue of uh, safety of the people you uh, work for. It is just mind boggling the yeah. amount of people that are going to have to get vaccinated in order for a workforce in its entirety to, to go back to work. And again, today we saw initial jobless claims, a big disappointment. So people aren't going back to work for many reasons right now. So it's not as urgent a question. Ferdinando, it is a very thought provoking column. Thanks for joining us today. Ferdinando Guglielmo is Bloomberg opinion editor. And the column, if you want to look it up, is who's booking their beach holiday already? Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.